good afternoon. Uh, my name is Danny Houghton, and um, I'm presenting um, something called Top Tips for Entrepreneurship Success uh, with uh, Jared Thurman. Um, and so um, we'll take a moment, and maybe Jared, just tell us a little bit about your background, um, entrepreneurially, what you're doing currently, and we'll do a brief introduction each way, and, and we'll get started. Sure, absolutely. Um, I currently have the pleasure of working with the Adventist Review, and we're working on a lot of new exciting initiatives uh, in the areas of augmented reality and virtual reality and on-demand video and audio, as well as some neat things we're doing with print. So if you haven't seen what we're up to lately, I'd love to have you come by our booth and see what we're doing. But uh, my background, I grew up in a home where two parents had high school educations and worked their tails off through life and taught me the value of a dollar. So entrepreneurship is very dear to me, and uh, working for what you eat makes you appreciate the food all the more. Uh, I, would, I would wonder, though, how many of us would call yourselves a failure? Anybody say, I'm a, I've, oh, we got a few people, okay. So I've been thinking about this idea recently, and I think about it in sports analogies. Uh, if you fail 60% of the time, you are an all-star in the NBA. If you miss, miss six out of ten shots, you're an all-star. And uh, baseball, you know, 300, you're a superstar. That means seven out of ten. And I sometimes wonder if we're a little hard on ourselves in our initiatives and endeavors, or maybe we're perhaps not even trying enough to think, hey, out of ten times, the best of the best in the world succeed maybe three to four times on average. So I hope you know you're in a safe place today. We're going to have some fun together. And uh, Danny, share with us about your background, please. Sure, I'm going to sure. turn us down a little. Sure. So I, um, I am a vice president of sales for a company called Vibrant Health Products. We actually have three different brands that are a part of our, our family of brands that we, uh, uh, that we sell to the public. Uh, one is called Silver Hills Bakery, um, which you're, you're eating some of the bread at our meals. Uh, it's a sprouted organic bread product. We have a, um, another brand called Little Northern Bakehouse, which is a, a plant-based, non-GMO verified, gluten-free line of breads. And then we have uh, One Degree Organic Foods, which is a completely transparent supply chain uh, line of products that include breakfast cereals, hot cereals, baking flours, and, and uh, certified organic breads as well. So I kind of work in the food space. And um, I've actually been coming to ASI for a number of years, and my first entrepreneurial venture was as an eight-year-old little boy, way, way back at an ASI convention, where my dad, who had a, a very small business called Instant Replay, would actually copy, uh, tape all of the ASI meetings, and we would make cassettes of those on demand right away within 15 or 20 minutes of that being done, and that was how we paid for our school. And so we would set up the supply chain right there, and we would make them and have them ready for people afterwards to sell. That was my first entrepreneurial venture. So uh, the neat thing about living here in the US is that starting a business is probably easier in the United States than anywhere else. And so, uh, you know, we've, we've traveled to some other areas of the country, lectured other ASI, um, you know, countries where it's not as easy to start a business. You know, it's very hard. But uh, we take a little bit of a different look at failure, as you were, as you were saying, uh, Jared. And so it's exciting to be able to have that framework. And what we want to do today in this seminar is to give you a couple of things that, that we've looked at that kind of have scriptural precedent that we believe would be of value to you as you're looking at saying, hey, I, I want to sharpen my business up, or I'm thinking about a startup, um, here are some things that we hope will be helpful uh, to you as, as you're looking at your own business. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about traveling here in preparation. 
This is my son Andrew. He's 16 months old. Uh, the very first time he ever flew was to ASI convention last year. And we had it easy. He didn't move at all. You know, he was very stationary. But we flew all the way from Seattle to, uh, to Orlando, a direct flight, almost six hours, and he moves a lot more than he used to. And so my wife began thinking about three or four weeks ago, how are we going to keep this little boy engaged and not have a meltdown when he has to be crushed into this two-seat space? And she had more games for that little guy to play, whether it was taking Q-tips and putting them in a bottle that had been emptied of water. He was able to do that for a good 30 minutes. You can see here she had some stuff he could stick on the window to keep him engaged. She was prepared. And let me tell you, when we landed, we hadn't had one major meltdown. And we were so thankful. I said, I'm so thankful that you prepared for that. Made it much, much easier. Which leads me to our first tip that we want to talk about, which is preparation. And um, I, I want to, to kind of tell you a little bit of a story. And then we're going to look at a very quick uh, biblical example. Um, I was at a trade show. Uh, it was the first time our company had been at a trade show. It was in Chicago in November. And uh, since we, it was our first time there, we hadn't gotten all the points that people typically will get so they can get the best spot for a booth. We were in the very, very back where there was zero traffic. And I hate that kind of thing because as a salesman, I like to be talking to people and I want to be able to present what we're talking about. Well, towards the end of the day, someone walked by that had their badge turned around backwards and asked me a question. They said, hey, we see that you have on your banner sprouted grain bread. Tell me about sprouted. And I thought, well, this is the first person I've been able to talk to in 15, 20 minutes. They're going to get both barrels. And so I, I talked to that lady for 30 minutes until I literally had no material left. And she just absorbed and absorbed and absorbed. Then she turned her badge around. And she was from the second largest distribution company in food service in the United States. And she handled all of the bread purchasing for that distribution company. And she said, I have a question for you. She said, my, my corporate headquarters are five minutes up the road. Can you come see me at 8 o'clock in the morning and do a presentation on your brand and what you can do for us as a company? And I looked at her and I said, yes, I can. And after I, after I said that and she left, I thought, what did I just promise? Because she was going to be bringing her VP in. There was a whole group she wanted to bring in. But I said yes because I knew that there were some things that we had prepared that would allow me with some work to actually pull that off. And so as soon as the day was done, I was in my room working. And what we do is we have a generic sales deck that we, uh, we always have prepared that has a listing of how we sell each product, what the benefits are, and I have a data analyst that goes in and changes the data every month so that uh, it's fresh, so that any trends that are there that are helpful to us, that we can sell from, it's always up to date and fresh. I also happen to have our head of R&D with me, and so... Um, we huddled together, we spent, we worked into the early hours of the morning, and we were there at 8 o'clock the next day. We pitched to a group that had some very high-level decision makers, and fast forward eight months, we launched two products with them nationally into all 72 of their warehouses, became an anchor for, for um, our move into food service to sell our products there, and we have since then been able to place additional products with them. In fact, they've even come to us and said, we've tried to get other people to knock off what you do, and it doesn't sell as well because you don't make as good a product. So that pitch, being able to pivot that quickly, was only possible because we had prepared. 
we have been able to say we never know when someone is going to come and ask us to do something like this, but if you prepare in advance, you can pivot very, very quickly. I like this quote from Bobby Unser, who is an automobile racer and three-time Indy winner. He says, success is where preparation and opportunity meet. You know, preparation favors the prepared, right? The success favors the prepared. I want to take you to uh, a story um, in the Old Testament uh, of King Jehoshaphat. Sorry. And I, I really like this story. There are so many business things that, principles that you can learn in the Old Testament, if you'll just take a little bit of time to unpack them. And I want to, I want to just show this to you. You know, King Jehoshaphat was lucky. His father was someone who worshipped God and promoted uh, the worship of Jehovah in his realm. And Jehoshaphat followed that. And I, you know, these cover a couple of different areas. Um, but you can see he worked to obliterate idol worship in his kingdom. So the first thing he did is he said, we're going to be worshipping Yahweh in Judah. Second thing, he established systematic instruction of the Holy Scriptures in his realm. That hadn't been done previously. And if you look at this quote from Patriarchs and Prophets, Ellen White tells us, to this wise provision for the spiritual needs of his subjects, Jehoshaphat owed much of his prosperity as a ruler. Notice that he also set up judges throughout his kingdom with a court of appeals. So not only was he instructing his people in, in the scriptures, but he had a way for them, if there was a disagreement that was happening, there was a process that you would go through. There was an appellate process that would bring it to Jerusalem. Ultimately, it came to him. So that there was, there was a sense of fair play that was able to be you know, distributed throughout his kingdom. He also worked very hard to make Judah an economic powerhouse. Um, Second Chronicles talks multiple times about how rich he became, not only because of the tribute that was paid, but also because he had different ventures that he would, you know, he tried to emulate what Solomon had done with, with sending ships to Ophir to get gold. He was constantly working on building up the economic engines in his, um, in his kingdom. And lastly, he built fortresses and storage cities. He trained his army. So he worked very hard. And um, all these different areas, whether it was instruction, uh, whether it was an economic, whether it was a military, he worked very, very hard to prepare in all of these areas. And I, I want to share this quote with you from uh, Prophets and Kings. Jehoshaphat was a man of courage and valor. For years he had been strengthening his armies and his fortified cities. He was well prepared to meet almost any foe, yet in this crisis he put not his trust in the arm of flesh. So even though he'd been doing all of this work, he didn't trust in his own work. Not by disciplined armies and fenced cities, but by a living faith in the God of Israel could he hope to gain the victory of these heathen who boasted of their power to humble Judah in the eyes of the nations. So, towards the end of his reign, he has this huge crisis hit. Basically, all the cousins, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Edomites, get together, and they come up near Jericho with a massive force. They said, we're going to take you out. And, you know, it's, it's interesting to see what the response was of his people. He brings them all together, and he puts them in the sanctuary, and he says, we're going to pray about this. He doesn't say we're going to go sharpen our swords, we're going to deploy the army in this way or that way. He says, we're going to pray about this. And so they pray and ask God, say, Lord, even when we came through from the Red Sea, up, we asked for the, the ability to pass through and pay our way. This is not anything that we've done that, that's, that's you know, against us in, in this fairness thing. Please help us. And so the Lord comes down and he says to a Levite, 
You're not even going to have to, he prophesies in front of the entire group, you're not even going to have to fight. You're not even going to have to raise your sword. And so what does Jehoshaphat do? He says, okay, we're going to trust that. You know what we're going to do? We're going to take our choir, and we're going to put the choir in front of the army, and we're going to deploy them out in front of this huge army. So not only does he prepare as best he knows how, he has his army there, but what he does is he says, Lord, I'm going to trust what you say. And, and it's that living faith in the God of Israel that ends up bringing the victory. And, you know, they go out there with the, army in, with the, the uh, choir in front of the army, and uh, the Lord turns these tribes against each other. They annihilate each other, and all they have to do is go and pick up all of the, the spoils that are left from the, 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 the soldiers that have killed each other. And you notice here, I, I love this end quote, then the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest all around. But you see, it's, it's the combination of hard work and preparation with a total reliance on God that gave Jehoshaphat the victory. There's one other story in the Old Testament that I want to very quickly hit of Joshua. Same type of thing. You may remember he was facing a coalition of Amorite kings, five of them to be exact, and um, I love this quote where it talks about how he prepared to fight. It says, Joshua had received the promise that God would surely overthrow these enemies of Israel, yet he put forth as earnest effort as though success depended upon the armies of Israel alone. Does that strike you as a, a lot of hard work? A little bit of elbow grease? He did all that human energy could do, and then he cried in faith for divine aid. The secret of success is the union of divine power with human effort. I'm going to read that again. The secret of success is the union of divine power with human effort. Those who achieve the greatest results are those who rely most implicitly on the almighty arm. So here's the first tip or set of tips we want to leave with you on preparation. Number one, you need to give your absolute best effort, right? Isn't that what God expects yes. of us? Whatever thy hand finds to do, do it with all thy might, right? Number two, rely completely on God for the outcome. Now, there are ditches on both sides of that, right? On the one side, you can say, hey, I'm giving my absolute best effort, and I'm going to start relying on who? Myself, right? The other side is, there's nothing I need to do because God's going to take care of it, and somehow it'll work itself out. Neither one of those ditches is where we want to be. We want to be blended right in the middle where we're doing everything we know how in whatever business venture that we're doing, but yet at the same time we rely completely upon God for the eventual outcome. So that's our first tip on preparation. I'm going to hand it over to, uh, to Jared. Hey, thank you, Danny. Appreciate that. Let's hope I've prepared. Uh, this next idea is something I'm very passionate about. Kindness is king. Uh, it may seem like the most simple idea, but as I read different journals and books and listen to podcasts and th see things in the world, I think this will be the distinguishing characteristic of the most successful ventures in the years to come. This idea of kindness being king, the most important thing. Here's something Ellen White says about this. A kind, courteous Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the gospel that can be produced. So questions to ask ourselves. As people engage with us and our business, as they engage with us in our nonprofit, as they engage with us at our church, do they leave 
saying, those are the nicest people I've ever met. Those were the kindest people. Is it actually remarkable? I love the word remarkable because, as I understand it, it means I have to go make remarks about that experience. I have to go tell somebody about this. And when we look through life, these are the things, these are the companies, these are the products, these are the experiences that we're giving our money and time to. Things that just blew us away, went above and beyond. And so we're going to look at a story where that takes place in Scripture with an awesome female named Abigail. So I'm just going to read through this and we're going to pull out some details. There's a man named Nabal. He's very rich. He has a gorgeous wife named Abigail. In verse 3 it says, She was a woman of good understanding, beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh, evil in his doings. When David... Uh, When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, David sent ten young men. David said to the men, Go up to Carmel, go to Nabal, greet him in my name. Thus you shall say to him who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace be to your house, and peace to all that you have. And then we see it begins to go through verses 7, 8, and 9. These young men go to Nabal's house. Hey, we've been protecting your sheep. We would love some food. We'd love a little thank you. We're hungry, and this would be so kind if you could help us out. A little bread and water. And Nabal answers, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away each from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men when I do not know where they are from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back. They came and told David all these words. David said to his men, Every man gird on his sword. Every man girded on his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David. 200 stayed with the supplies. David is hot. He is angry. He feels like he deserved something in this experience. Now one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, Look, David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us. We were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in the fields. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you will do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household. For he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak of him. (laughs) Okay, so this is the setting. David and his men are furious. They deserved better than being refused some food and water. Abigail is told this. What does she do? You are made aware of experiences in your organization, your venture, your church. You are authorized to make it right. Abigail instantly says, I have to make this right. Because people are coming to kill us. Then Abigail made haste, took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, five seahs of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, loaded them on donkeys. She said to her servants, go on before me, I'm coming after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. So it was, as she rode on the donkey that she went down under cover of the hill 
And there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. All right, so how will kindness prevail in this moment? David had said, Surely in vain I've protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness. Nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he's repaid me evil for good. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David, if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. This is the man after God's own heart. All right. Now David said, surely in vain. Uh, let's see. Here we go. Nope, 22. May God. Nope. 23. Now when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed down to the ground. Let me pause for a second. There are moments when we encounter people that are acting completely inappropriate in any engagement we have with them. They're inappropriate. David is absolutely inappropriate. He was refused food for crying out loud. But he is on a warpath to kill people. Now how does Abigail act and react in a moment of hostility? She gets down. She bows down. Verse 24 says, She falls at his feet and says, On me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. So she takes responsibility even though it wasn't her fault. If more of us did that, what would happen? Please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal. For as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand, now let them let your enemy, excuse me, now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. And now this present which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, let it be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trust. She begins to just pour it on thick. And she begins to remind him who he is. Going above and beyond. And this idea, as I see it, the most successful ventures in the world are trying to do with technology. Save their preferences. Try and track what they want to do. Ritz-Carlton remembers you like fresh-squeezed lemonade. They take notes. They know what you like. She is going so far above what the moment calls for. And so where does that lead us? Well, Ellen White says something else about this concept. In your association with others, put yourself in their place. A lot of times we encounter people, they are upset. How do we put ourselves into their shoes? Remember Jesus' words, whatever it is you'd want someone to do for you, what? Do for them. To do that takes high emotional intelligence. No movement in the world has guidelines and principles to have higher frontal lobe development and intelligence than the Seventh-day Adventist Church. So they should be, we should be, the kindest people on the planet with the highest emotional intelligence on earth. In the coming years, there will be two roads that are going to diverge. Those who understand artificial intelligence and those who understand emotional intelligence. And the emotionally intelligent ones will be telling the ones who are running the artificial intelligence how to do their jobs. Because still at the end of the day, we're managing people. So in this moment, Abigail is exhibiting such amazing skills in managing the moment. It goes on. Enter into their feelings. 
So it starts with, in your association with others, put yourself in their place, enter into their feelings, their difficulties, their disappointments, their joys, and their sorrows. This is of people who support your ministry, come to your church, buy products from your company. What's going on in their lives? Identify yourself with them. Do to them as were you to exchange places with them, you would wish them to deal with you. This is the true rule of honesty. It is another expression of the law. It goes to Jesus' words in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine: Love thy neighbor as thyself. Another expression of the law. Then it gets really heavy here on this idea of kindness into a spiritual sense. Desire of Ages 6.38, those whom Christ commends in the judgment may have known little of theology, but they have cherished his principles. Through the influence of the divine spirit, they have been a blessing to those about them. Even among the heathen are those who have cherished the spirit of kindness. Before the words of life had fallen upon their ears, they have befriended the missionaries, even ministering to them at the peril of their own lives. Among the heathen are those who worship God ignorantly, those to whom the light is never brought by human instrumentality, yet they will not perish. Though ignorant of the written law of God, they have heard his voice speaking to them in nature, have done the things that the law required. Their works are evidence that the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts, and they are recognized as the children of God. So as we have organizations that engage with real people, with real issues, we have to put ourselves into their shoes and ask, what would I want someone to do for me in this situation? Because I'm sure you can think of some business you've done business with in the last month or two, and it was bad. Is that fair? Anybody say, this was just not what I wanted. And those of us that will succeed in the coming months and years will be asking ourselves, what is it I'd want in this moment? And how do I even make it better than that? So this huge point of kindness being king is a way that we can say, hey, at the end of the day, I've got to make this so beautifully, uh, emotionally enriching and fulfilling that people say, you've got to go there, to that church, to that organization, to buy that product or that experience. You know, one of the things that uh, is very unique about the story of David and Abigail is when David makes that decision not to shed innocent blood. That was an incredibly good decision because I can imagine when he came to the point where he was going to be anointed king, had he done something like that, who knows what path would have happened if he had not expressed that kind of kindness. So the next thing we want to talk about is good decisions. And I, you know, as a young boy, I can almost hear my dad saying to me, and he hammered this home to my brother and to me, Good decisions begat more good decisions. You ever heard someone say that? Isn't that right? Once you kind of get a momentum making positive decisions, it, it kind of carries out a little bit further. Um, I like this quote from Tony Robbins. It says, it is in your moments of decision that your destiny is shaped. Hmm. I want to share a very brief little story about when we were starting uh, our, our company, Wonder View Organic Foods, from scratch. One of the huge decisions that we had to make was what broker we were going to select to present our products nationally in the United States. It's a big decision. It needs to be someone that kind of fits, you know, what it is that, that you do and kind of the energy you want to bring as a brand. And we, we were fortunate to be in a position where we had the top two brokers both courting us and saying, we want you to 
sign with us. We want to do this work with you and partner with you. One was a, was a company that, that had a real good uh, presence and representation of what we call the natural and organic space. So think of the whole foods of the world, the sprouts of the world, your local co-op. The other was one that had a, a little bit of a less um, robust uh, coverage there, but they also, the big conventional, the Publixes of the world and the, the Walmarts of the world and, and uh, the Krogers of the world, they had all of that as well. And they came in and they, they sold us this huge story of, we're going to be able to take you everywhere. And so we had this very, very tough decision that we had to made and, make, and we realized that this decision, once we make it, is really going to have an impact on, um, on how you know, our, our company proceeds and how successful we are. And as we looked at these two organizations, I, I discerned that the one that was really good in the natural organic space had a level of energy and excitement about what we were doing that was going to set them apart a little bit. And I, I had this text in my mind that kept playing over and said, whatever thy hand finds to do, do it with all thy might. And it just seemed that these people had that spirit a little bit more. And so we selected them. And it's probably the best decision that we have made when we look at the trajectory of our, our company and how we've been able to place our product in stores uh, was, was that decision. And that has bred other good decisions and other opportunities that have opened other doors for us. So, you know, sometimes you come to that decision point and you look at the two different routes you can take and you say, how do I make that right decision? Um, I want to take a, a quick look at a case study I call the Sons of Issachar. Now, when you go back and you look at this, this is just when David has been anointed king. And all of the tribes are sending in all of their regular troops. And it's a kind of a, you know, there's a little bit of a jockeying for position. And, you know, you've got the big tribes and the little tribes. And, and you can see here in this list, Judah has 6,800 warriors. Simeon sends 7,800. You kind of go down the list. Ephraim even has 20,800. That's a bigger number. You get, to, you get to half the tribe of Manasseh, which was on the other side of the Jordan, 18,000. And then you come to the sons of Issachar, and the number's 200. Okay? And you keep on moving down. You can see the numbers get bigger, 50,000, 38, 28, 40. And then Reuben, Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, 120,000. And you think, you know, whenever you're looking at data, you know, we're awash in data today, right? You look at that, and that's like a huge blinking neon sign. What is going on here? This is different. Notice what they say about the, the sons of Issachar. It says, And of the children of Issachar, which were men that had understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do, the heads of them were 200, and all their brethren were at their commandment. So Issachar says, We're going to be a little bit different here. Instead of showing our brawn and how many guys we can send in to the king for his army, we're going to send our best thinkers. And notice the two things that they call out. An understanding of the times. So a sense of what's going on in the world right now. And they knew what Israel ought to do. They could provide counsel and said, this is what you should do in a decision. Now notice what the SDA Bible commentary says about the men of Issachar. These men of Issachar were men who had wisdom to understand the meaning of current events and were, who were able to provide intelligent counsel. Now, how, how can you provide intel, you know, how can you understand the meaning of current events? What do you have to know? You have to know what's going on, right? You have to you have, to have a network. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. But I want to focus on the, the, the phrase, understanding of the times. When I went and looked this up in the Bible commentary, it referenced this story, and we all, all know the story of Esther, 
where it starts with King Ahasuerus commanding his wife to come in and dance in front of all of his lords. Okay? And she refuses. And it makes him very, very angry. And notice what he does. Notice his response. But the queen Vashti refused to come in at the king's commandment by his chamberlains. Therefore the king was very wroth and his anger burned in him. Then the king said to the wise men which knew the times. Okay? Now that's the same phrase that we saw in 1 Chronicles when we were talking about the, the uh, sons of Issachar. What shall we do unto the queen Vashti according to law because she hath not performed the commandment of the king? Now notice what, what the Bible commentary says here about these wise men in the, in the empire of Persia. Persons of learning and experience, talking about the wise men, who were acquainted with precedence and who knew what would be the proper thing to do on any particular occasion. Now, in this case, it's talking about the precedent of Medo-Persian law. And from the story of Daniel, we know that that was something they took very seriously that could not be changed. Once the law was written, whatever it was, it had to be executed. But if we take that principle and we apply it to us today, what precedent would we say is important to look at when we're trying to discern what a proper decision should be? What do you think? Maybe scripture? Mm -hmm. Would that be a good precedent for us to look at? Mm -hmm. So... Notice here, we've got, we've got three things. Number one, we need to educate ourselves on current events. Okay? You need to create a funnel that allows you to have a feel for what's going on. Now, that can take a variety of different forms. You know, there are a series of news websites that I look at regularly every morning. There are a number, I, at any given time, I'm reading a, a series of different books. I may be listening to three or four of them at the same time. And I like to see how maybe sometimes thoughts overlap and somehow they, they relate to each other. There are also industry and trade journals that I will read that are specific to my industry. In addition to that, I kind of have a human network of friends and, and colleagues that I will ask questions and say, hey, have you heard about what's going on related to this or that? So you need to have all of these different elements that will funnel down into um, a body of knowledge that gives you a sense of what's going on. And then what you need to do is you need to filter that through a set of precedents, and, and I'm going to suggest to you that we look at that as scripture and have that be filtered in such a way and framed in such a way where you can say, here's what's going on, here's how it relates to the precedent of scripture, and that ought to allow me to properly frame this decision in such a way that I can then pro either provide intelligent counsel or make the proper decision. Does this make sense? Mm -hmm. And so... You know, you, you've got to make sure that you know what's going on, have a network, and then have a base that you work from. And I would suggest that Scripture is by far the best one because you're only as good as the decision that you make mm -hmm. today. So I want to read you a quote. It says this. Redbox and Netflix are not even on the radar screen in terms of competition. That was the Blockbuster CEO in December of 2008. <laughs> not even on the radar. This next one is exciting, the idea of disruption. So tying off of what Danny just shared, the sons of Iskar, they knew the time, and they knew what Israel should do. In the world of business, it is a really strategic moment to be following trends and to be knowing what is it that will be the opportune thing tomorrow.
not today. Because the trap is, do what the other guys are doing today. So that would have been Mr. Jim Key's scenario. Ah, you know, we got a lot of stores. People rent videos. They drive to them. They love driving 30 minutes. So that's not going to change. Uh, so look at, let's look at a few other examples. You have iTunes. Few would have thought that people would purchase their music through communication channels rather than at the local store. Uh, the largest taxi company in the world, Uber, owns no cars. The largest hotel company in the world, Airbnb, owns no hotels. Companies that are disrupting. What does that look like? Here's a story of disruption I'm very excited about. We're going to talk about David and Goliath. Uh, this one I love. Fate whispers to the warrior, you cannot withstand the storm. The warrior whispers back, I am the storm. David and Goliath. We use this example a lot. It's used a lot in the business world. Uh, we look to big companies. They are Goliath. Blockbuster is Goliath. How could this little streaming platform compete? Right? Uh, IBM is Goliath. How could the little fruit technology company compete? So who had the advantage in this story? I, I just want to go through this right quick. This one's pretty exciting to me. So here's the scenario. The Philistines are standing on one mountain. Israel is standing on the other mountain in 1 Samuel 17. There's a valley between them. The champion went out from the camp of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. Some believe that was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head. He was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, about 156 pounds. Nothing could penetrate this armor. He had a bronze armor on his legs, bronze javelin between his shoulders. The staff of his spear was like the weaver's beam. His iron and his iron spearhead weighed 600 shekels, and a shield bearer went before him. He stood and cried out to the armies of Israel and said to them, Why have you come out to line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves. Let him come down to me. Notice some of these words. He's got to come to me. Goliath never fights on your turf. He wants you to fight on his turf. This is where some of the biggest companies are realizing, rather than let the next guy beat us, let's create a lab, a department. Your job is to beat us at our own game. Here's 10 million bucks. Go figure out how to do what we do better. But it's much better that we own you rather than the next guy being that person. Okay. So we learn some things about David through his life and, and things that you may be doing in your life that nobody's noticing. There may be a skill you have, nobody really notices, but you've been honing this skill. David had a couple skills. As he's watching sheep all day, uh, he's playing music. That music gets him to, into the audience of the king to learn how not to be king. He had an amazing talent that took him to an amazing opportunity to learn exactly how not to do a job. That is one of the most powerful lessons I've learned in the last 10 years of my life. God taking me into positions to learn the worst possible way to do something. Around the worst possible people to do it with. It's a, it's a horrifying lesson to go through, but it's amazing to learn from it. So David literally sits in the court of the king with his talent that's got him there playing music, 
and he watches this dysfunctional mess. And God is showing him, when you become king, never do this. When you lead this organization, don't do that. Then he's got another skill. He's a slinger. Now, as a child, I have to admit, I never understood this story. I thought it was a cute little boy, and he had a little rock, and he threw it, and whatever. There's only one way Goliath goes down. A slinger fights him. The Goliaths in the world of business say, come to us. If you want to fight with us, bring your advertising dollars, compete with us on our stage. And that's what Goliath does here. You come down to me. And the Cretan way of fighting was, both armies don't need to fight it out. You send your best, we'll send our best. Both of our sides trust us a lot. The loser serves the other. So these were the terms, and there are going to be terms in the world of business and and organizations that you lead and run where people want you to fight on their turf. Don't do it. Disruption doesn't come from innovation. Innovation is just doing something a little better. Disruption is doing it entirely different. We don't need to own taxis. People own cars. Let's just create an app. People can call a cab anywhere they want. So this is the story. So David's there, and he's, he's kind of confused. I mean, you guys are being talked trash to every day. So David says to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're a youth. He's a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb out of the flock, I went out after it and struck it and delivered the lamb from its mouth. When it arose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck it and killed it. I kill lions, Saul. Now question. As he learns this art of being a slinger, what experts say is he had the precision at 400 feet Some believe more. With the precision of a 44 Magnum handgun to hit a target. Now you have Goliath, big, huge Goliath, standing here. You come fight me on my turf. And you have a guy with a gun. Who has the advantage? And we've never looked at this story like this, right? Malcolm Gladwell's book, David and Goliath, is phenomenal on this concept. That when we look at things as Goliaths, they may really just be slow-moving targets. What is it you can do in your local church, in your local business, that is so innovative, that is so disruptive, that maybe you could test it out in your local place and then share it with people that may not have the ability to test something out so much? This is often how disruption comes. So we know that David goes out there, and we learn from Ellen White where he gets the sweet advantage. Goliath is insulted. Am I a dog? You send me out here? Now, Goliath can't hold his shield and his weapons, so he has somebody holding weapons for him. Some people believe there's reasons for that. This guy's not quick on his feet. He's so mad that Ellen White says he does something very foolish. He raises his helmet. Now, if you're a slinger with the precision of David, and you've had the confidence that the Lord... You have prepared, and the Lord will deliver? This is easy. Boom. One shot. What is it that the talent the Lord has given you 
People may not be respecting right now. People think, oh, we live in a world where there's DVDs. And you say, yeah, but it's not like that. It's something that you really, you'll have to stream it. It's a crazy concept, right? This idea of disruption is unpopular. Nobody understands it. It doesn't make sense. It rarely gets funded. But disruption, when done at the right moment, changes everything. And in this moment, we literally could have seen a turning point in the history of Israel. But instead, David kills the giant, does some other explicit things to his body, and they chase him off the scene. What is it God's put in your hand that you can master and be prepared for disruption? One of the things building off on the story. Sorry, I got it. Can you hear me? So, one of the things that you want to do when you're looking at the story of David is build on that incredible act that really launched him into the kingship, you know, trajectory. And one of the things that David learned as he became more seasoned and as he became ruler over all 12 tribes of Israel was man, you've got to balance the load. And when you think about whether it's your ministry, whether it's your church, whether it's your business, sometimes this is something that can be challenging for us. Whether it's, you know, I think I can do all this on my own, I can figure it out, or maybe you work yourself too hard. How do you balance the load, and how do you make sure that a broader enterprise, a bigger moving ministry or business, can actually be successful? I love this quote from Albert Einstein. Life is like riding a bicycle. To keep your balance, you must keep moving. Now, one of the things that I try to do every morning, and I do do most mornings, is I try and get out and exercise. And I try and make sure that I'm very efficient with my time. So I usually kind of speed walk between four and six miles every day, three in the morning, two to three in the morning, two to three at night, depending on my schedule for that day. And I, I like to listen to books, usually Spirit of Prophecy. In the mornings, I will usually listen to Scripture. And I particularly enjoy the clear word paraphrase that I have on my, my iPhone. And I was going through Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah have a lot of names of guys. You know, and when you're reading it, it's very easy to skip through it. But the way that they've coded it, it's not by chapter. You know, they didn't take the time to go through to do that. So you can only fast forward about 15 seconds. And I, I kind of felt bad about, no, I made this commitment. I'm going to listen. I, I shouldn't really fast forward. So I said, you know what? I'm going to listen to the names and see if there's something that I can learn from it. And as I got to the book of Nehemiah, I got to the point where they were building the wall around Jerusalem. And I found something very, very interesting that I want to share with you that I think relates to sh uh, spreading and sharing the load. I broke down and I looked at all the people that were mentioned that were working on building the wall. And it broke down into these groups. Some of them made sense. Some of them were a bit of a surprise. You look at the local government. So you get, they, they call it a mayor. There were two mayors of Jerusalem. They'd broken that into two different districts. Um, and you can see the, the different names. You know, these are basically people that worked for Nehemiah. Nehemiah was the appointed governor from the Persian king to the province of Judea. So these make sense. Okay? He has control over them. He pays them. All right, you come in. This is what we're doing. But after you get around that, then all of a sudden you see surrounding cities. Okay? 
maybe he didn't have as much influence there, but he was able to recruit them across. Then you get down to the clergy, and he mentions Eliashib, the high priest. Okay, so the clergy was kind of a separate grouping that Nehemiah didn't necessarily have direct control over. Yet he's able to get them, the Levites, the Nethanim, and priests that were outside of the Jerusalem area recruited to roll up your sleeves and start helping us build. It wasn't something that the priests necessarily always did. But then you get over to the, the next grouping, business. So there were guys that were goldsmiths, perfumers, merchants. So he's, he's recruiting you know, the people that handle commerce to help him with this building project. And then what I call the in front of his house guys. There's a whole list of guys that are basically there. Their house is on the wall. He says, hey, this is going to help you. Just start helping us build in the area in front of your wall. Lastly, and I love this, there was one guy that brought a bunch of his daughters. His name was Shalom. So they even had women working on the wall, which may not be as big a deal to us, but back then that was kind of a, a taboo that was, you know, you usually didn't have women working out in construction. So, so what I see here is I see a leader who is able to recruit from a broad cross-section of life, different people, and he's able to get them to subscribe to a specific goal and to put their, you know, put their shoulder to the plow and really help them work. And he gets them all going, and they're building. And you know, they've got sword in one hand and the, the brick-laying tool in the other, and they're going to town. Now notice what happens. Now it happened when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had rebuilt the wall and there were no breaks left in it, though at that time I had not hung the doors and the gates. So he's almost done with his project, but he still does not have the ability to seal the city inside. The, the gates are not hung, so if these guys come at him, they can still come through the area where the gates have not been hung. That Sam Ballin and Geshem said to, sent to me saying, come and let us meet together among the villages in the plain of Ono, but they thought to do me harm. So what are they trying to do? Nehemiah has got this broad cross-section of people focused on this goal. They're working hard to get it completed because once they get it completed, there's another whole phase that's, be able, that's able to be entered into uh, in rebuilding Jerusalem. They, they try and get him to leave, but notice his response. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease while I leave it and go down to you? He's saying, hey, I've built this momentum. I've recruited all these different groups. If I leave, that may start to dissipate. And of course, we know that would have been the case. They try this on him four different times. Wow. That's a lot of times to say no. He keeps coming and saying, I can't come down. Finally, they say, hey, this is not going the way we hoped it would go. So they send him an open letter. Now, today we have Twitter. And we have a lot of people that are always sending open letters. <laughs> the idea is basically, we're telling everybody what we're just going to tweet here. So they kind of send a tweet that goes out to everybody that says, Nehemiah is actually rebelling, and he is going to be starting his own kingdom, and he's going to break away from the Persian Empire. It's their last effort to try and get him to come off of this big project where he's been able to kind of spread the load and get this built. But he does not, of course, fall for this last one, and there's a process they go through. But what I found fascinating on, uh, on this specific topic, they're able to, Nehemiah is able to recruit and to motivate a broad and multidisciplinary group to support the load. And I think of how things work in, in our, our own company. 
which is whenever I've got a project that I want to try and execute, there are so many different groups within our company that I have to recruit and bring along. There's marketing. You know, I work on the sales side. There's the QA team that has to make sure that we make it in the right way to the proper standard. There's the R&D team um, that is the one responsible for making whatever the new product may be. There's the production team that has to make sure we can make enough. There's the, you know, there's the logistics team that has to make sure we get it there. Each of these different groups, and, and it may be different in your ministry or in your business, you have different groups that have different functions that almost kind of have their own, what's the word I can use, their, their, their own culture that have to be brought together into a focused goal, and you kind of have to stay with them and push all the way through that while you're sharing the load to keep the focus until you cross the finish line. And so as we look at Nehemiah here, and, and we see the two big principles, number one, it's important to have a broad cross-section where you can spread the work, find people that have different expertises that allow you to accomplish what you're trying to do, and don't stop until the work is complete. So as I mentioned earlier, I truly believe kindness is the most important thing, followed by candor. I think that many times we may mix these up, that it is more important for me to tell you the truth than to be nice to you. And, and I, I really do think it's in this order. So kindness is queen, candor is, kindness is king, candor is queen. Uh, how, do we, how do we deal with this in the world today? You know, it's so easy to be kind to someone and not genuinely honest. Your film is great. Or, uh, you know, oh yeah, the church service was, was very nice. And we're not being honest. How do we balance this out? Where we can be very kind, but we can be very honest. That's our, that's our trick. Ed Catmull is the CEO of Pixar and Disney Animation. Candor isn't cruel. It does not destroy. On the contrary, any successful feedback system is built on empathy, on the idea that we are all in this together. He talks about a story, how this really played out, played out as they were creating content at Pixar as compared with Disney, and how he noticed two different cultures. One culture, everyone knew they cared for each other, and they could go to each other and say, hey, they have something at Pixar called the Brain Trust. You know I care for you, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This film is boring. <laughs> and you probably should rewrite it. At Disney, he recognized, this film is great. I mean, it is awesome. Wow, so good. And losing $100 million. Losing $100 million. And he's like, something's not right here. Do you guys really think these films are great? Well, no, but I don't want to offend my boss. So, so how do we balance this out with the idea of how honest we can be? And for this one, we're going to look at the story of David and Nathan. Before I go there, though, there's a statement we've probably heard before. that This is pretty important, especially in the day and age we live in, from the book Education, 50, page 57. The greatest want of the world is the want of men. Think about in the Me Too movement we're watching. You got no men. You got a bunch of boys posing as people that are not doing wrong, right things. They're doing wrong. So ladies are looking for men. Where are the men? 
willing to stand up. The greatest one of the world is the one of men. Men who will not be bought or sold. Men who in their inmost souls are true and honest. Men who do not fear to call sin by its right name. Men whose conscience is as true to duty as the needle to the pole. Men who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. David and Nathan had a relationship. And I think it's very important that we earn the right to be right with people. And I think we should even ask them, have I earned the right to speak truth into your life? And unless they say, absolutely, you don't have that right. And as Adventists, I'll be the first to admit, it's very tempting because I say, I know so much. You need so much of my information in your life. I just need to tell you something. I hope you take this the right way. But you gotta fill in the blank. So here we read, from eternity past, this is, Ellen White says, Nathan delivered the divine sentence with such heaven-born wisdom as to engage the sympathies of the king, to arouse his conscience, to call from his lips the sentence of death upon himself. The prophet repeated the story of wrong and oppression that demanded redress. Here we go. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, There were two men in one city. One was rich, the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought up and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food, drank from his own cup, lay in his bosom. It was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man and refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. He said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then David said to David, You're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your keeping, gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. He shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the sun. Whoa. And because they had a relationship, David says to Nathan, I've sinned against the Lord. Ellen White even says, The prophet's rebuke touched the heart of David. Conscience was aroused. His guilt appeared in all its enormity. 
With trembling lips, he said, I have sinned against the Lord. David had committed a grievous sin toward both Uriah and Bathsheba, but infinitely greater was his sin against God. From prophets and kings, God cannot use individuals who in time of peril, when the strength, courage, and influence of all are needed, are afraid to take a firm stand for the right. He calls for men who will do faithful battle against wrong, warring against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. It is to such as these that he will speak the words, well done, good and faithful servant. My story is when you learn truth, you often get very convicted on it. Perhaps you've been in the ditch on the left, and with all the conviction in the world, you recognize I have been in the wrong, and I need to get in the right. And nine times out of ten, we overcorrect. And we go after people still in the ditch. You need to do this. You should be doing this. Why aren't you doing this? You should be doing this. You should be... And Ellen White says, rebuke and censure have never reclaimed someone from a wrong position. But it has driven many to go against their convictions and never come back. They know what's right. So how do we apply this in the business world? One of the coolest things when you start a business is to be able to have a culture where people love to work with one another. Where you just think, I want to be working right now. I want to be with my team. I want to be creating something, doing something. I live for this. But if we get into an environment where it's just niceties, no great thing will ever come from that. We may be nice to each other, but we really don't like our product, our experience, our church service, and we're going home and we're wishing we'd have been honest. But the best companies, the best organizations, and the greatness of the Advent movement will lie in this idea. Can we be loving enough to be honest with each other? And to hold those as guardrails so that we can continually say, Danny, I, I got to tell you the truth, but thank you, Lord, for helping me realize I got to love my brother as myself. What would I want to hear if I was in Danny's shoes? How do we make a better product, a better experience? And I just want to challenge you to think of these two things, kindness and candor. And anytime you want to get too kind and leave out the truth, remember, there's a ditch over there. Or too much candor and leave out kindness, there's a ditch over there. How do we maintain the balance through life? So when we're looking at that balance, it's very important to pick the proper words. Do you agree? And so... What we want to spend time here in our, in our last kind of, of segment here with the tips that we want to share with you is how do you choose the right words hmm. in whatever situation that you're faced with? And I want to just share a, a brief example. One of the things that I learned, and I had to learn the hard way, I didn't do it right always at the beginning, was how challenging it could be to figure out a way to pitch properly to a grocery, a retail grocery buyer. Now, you got to realize when you're, when you're visiting with a retail grocery buyer, and this is kind of what I do, you're one of a hundred people that they're going to see over a span of two to three weeks when they're reviewing their category. And some of you are nodding your head. You're understanding what I'm talking about. So 
sometimes you're able to secure a 30-minute, sometimes you're able to secure an hour to present to them and give them a full idea of what you're going to be doing. Sometimes you're walking with a broker and they say, you've got three minutes. Okay? And you never know. Sometimes you do all the research you can do to find out who they are, what they're like. You know, do they give you the time? Are they abrupt? Uh, do they let you talk? So you do your research, but at the same time, you never know what's going to happen. And so I've learned to prepare in such a way for my pitch to be able to talk for 30 minutes or to be able to talk for five minutes. And it takes preparation. It takes hard work to be able to recognize if I had to condense this down to three minutes, what would I want to score with this person? What would I want them to, to see as memorable? And when I walk out, will they remember what I have to say? So King Solomon says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver. Choosing the right words is such an important thing. I want to close by looking at a case study with Jesus in dialogue. And it's, it's a fascinating difference to see how he does it two different ways. And we're going to start by looking at the story of Nicodemus, a very familiar story. And, and Nicodemus starts by throwing Jesus what we kind of call a softball. Okay? Whenever you're in a dialogue, you're going to have a discussion with somebody, he throws him a softball, which basically means you ought to be able to hit that thing out of the park wherever you want to hit it. Left field, right field, center field, whatever. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. He's basically saying, Jesus, here, here's, here's a frame. I'm going to give you a compliment. Take the conversation where you'd like it to go. Notice what Ellen White says here in Desire of Ages, talking about Nicodemus. His words were designed to express and to invite confidence. Who wants Jesus to feel good? But they really expressed unbelief. Basically, prove yourself to me. Not that different from some of the questions that Satan posed in the wilderness. If you are the Son of God, do this, do this. Okay? Notice Jesus' response here. There's some candor in this answer. Instead of recognizing the salutation from Nicodemus, Jesus comes directly to the point. Doesn't screw around, doesn't hit the softball, lets the pitch go by and says, I'm going to hit this where I think it needs to be hit. And, and look at his response. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he plants this seed in, in Nicodemus' mind, and he, you know, of course, being divine, could read and understand. You talk about emotional intelligence. Of course, Christ probably invented emotional intelligence right. in each of us, right? So he's able to read Nicodemus, and he looks at him, and he recognizes that there is a soil there that's very fertile, and that he is able to cut right to the, right to the quick, and to have a very high degree of candor in dealing with Nicodemus. And of course, as you read through the rest of this discourse, you can see that Nicodemus is kind of taken back, and there's a, there's a back and forth, and, and you know, it ends up that Nicodemus does not publicly support Christ through his, his active ministry until he's crucified. But note, note the way that there was a tremendous amount of candor here, cut straight to the point, and, and confronted Nicodemus exactly where he needed to be confronted. Now, I want to I look at one other one, and this comes from Acts chapter 1, okay? And when I read this, this, this actually came from the Sabbath school lesson a couple years back, you know, a couple of weeks back. We're studying uh, the book of Acts right now. And when I read this, you know, I'd read it before, but somehow it struck me a little differently. Talking about the disciples, 
Luke writes, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, was this a ridiculous question at this point in time? Well, the crucifixion has happened. He has been for three years trying to teach them about what his kingdom is like. The road to Emmaus has already happened. So he's explained to two of the disciples, at least, that he's not here to set up a temporal kingdom. This is asking, when are you going to set up a physical kingdom that we can actually see? You know, John the Baptist did not even understand this, and Jesus gets all the way through his ministry. He's crucified. He's risen from the dead. He's, he's raised from the dead. And he's still being asked the same question. Now, if you were to put that question into a business setting, where there had been a multiple, you know, multiple opportunities where you were trying to teach your staff something about a specific way you wanted something done or to view the business in a certain way, at a certain point as an executive, you'd probably say, you know, how many more times do I have to tell you? And my instinct as I read this was like, man, Jesus, just set them straight, will you? Just tell them finally. Have some candor here. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't confirm or deny that he's going to set up. He doesn't answer the question. He really doesn't answer the question. He absorbs the question and he redirects it. Note his response. It is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. So you're asking me this question. Let's not focus on that for right now. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus does not use candor in this example. He basically says, you know, you don't need to worry about that right now. I want to take your focus from here, and I want to move it over here. And you know that thing that you're so worried about, having this huge kingdom, where you're going to be able to have all these different people? It's a different level that we're talking about here. And he underscores again in a very gentle way that this is a, you're not thinking about it the right way. Let's, let's maybe move you over here. And so you look at both of these examples, which take a tremendous amount of emotional intelligence, to be, to be honest. You know, we talked about that a little bit earlier. When do you use which approach? How do you know when to do this? The first thing we know from Proverbs 15.28, study how to answer. So obviously Jesus is talking about his kingdom here. This is why he came to, to, you know, to this earth, was to share what his kingdom was like. He's intimately familiar with that. With whatever you're dealing with in your ministry or in your business, you want to make sure as you're thinking about it, whether you're going to, to pitch to a buyer, and you want to think about every way you might have to share that, and whether it's three minutes or 30 minutes, or when you get into a staff meeting, the different people that are going to be coming from different angles, how do you deal with one versus the other? You need to study different ways that you might be able to answer something. Number two, you want to read the situation and the people you are engaging. It's very important to study the person that you're going to be working with. Get as much intelligence as you can. Watch them. You know, get a sense for how they relate in groups. Um, watch them over a period of time in their work. Understand what they really think like. Put yourself in their shoes. We talked about that a little bit earlier from a kindness perspective. And then lastly, you know, ask the Lord for help to determine, help you determine which way you're supposed to respond. Do you need to use candor in this case? Or maybe can you, can you shift focus and avoid some of that conflict because of the way that things may be going down, the situation at that given time? But it's important to recognize that these words have tremendous power and import 
to, to change direction for decisions that you may be making, for, for you know, different things that you're facing in your business or your ministry, choosing the right words are a critical component of success. And we can see from, from Jesus' example here that it can be handled in different ways and that he's, he's able to give us the wisdom to know how to best relate in each of those situations. So this kind of brings an end to our formal remarks. And Jared, come on back up. Um, one of the things that we did last time in our, in our discussion last, uh, uh, last year at this same seminar was to give you a chance to ask us some questions. We can't guarantee that we're going to be able to answer all of them, but uh, if there are some that you'd like to ask us here briefly at the end of the seminar, we'd be happy to entertain uh, any questions that you may have. So your question, so let me just repeat the question. He's, he's asking, um, he's asking that he has, a, he has an employee that is in an abusive relationship that is affecting their work. Is that, is that fair to say? And what, I think what you're asking is, what is my responsibility in relating to this specific one? You want to attack that or you want me to? Or? I'm happy to give you that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would say, you know what? You said it's a female? This is a female? Married? Boyfriend? Another woman? I'd want to meet her. I'd want to meet the woman, the other woman. I mean, the, the instant thought is, I want to tell this woman off. I would say, what's really going on? What's the situation here? There may be something that you have the answer to that, oh, I didn't know that both of your child just died, and it's created an awkward moment. So I think it's putting yourself in their shoes Hey, I'd love to have you and her come to lunch with me and some friends, whatever, you know, your wife, uh, so that it's appropriate. But I, I think sometimes you've got to dig into people's lives and really find out, how can I bless you so that this problem that is affecting my business won't affect my business and then won't affect you? I don't know. What are your thoughts? No, I think it's a good point. The idea that you're saying there is to try to get to the root cause and understand if there's something that, that uh, may not be evident on the surface because... That, that helps you better frame the decision on how you want to relate to it. Getting that flushed out a little bit, whether it's talking to her and asking, say, hey, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to pry into your personal life, but I, I recognize that it's, it's affecting your work. I want to be supportive to you. Is there anything else you can share? Or in Jared's case where he's saying, maybe you can meet the partner as well and see if there's something that you can learn there that would allow you to better frame how to relate to that decision. I, So let me repeat the question so you can answer. We have it on tape. So the question was, what company do you see that is reflecting the two things that Jared covered, which is kindness and, and candor? Can you give us an example? I would say one that I've read a book about recently is Ritz-Carlton. Now, that's not something we all just can go stay at every <laughs> night, right? But here's an example. Ritz-Carlton employees are trusted to make a guest happy, you can spend up to $2,000 and you don't have to ask for permission. Okay. 
I have to ask for permission to spend $100 at the general conference. So that's, that's an example. I would say, uh, I'm being a little facetious there, but the point being, that's a lot of trust that they've put into their employees. Make our guests love this place. Now, I, th I think that can be easier in a business with margins, right? Yeah. But, but still, I think we could take it into every, every uh, thing we, we put our hand to. How can we make this absolutely more than what people expect? I'd love to see what, we, what would happen if we did that in our churches. People expect something when they come to church. Well, how would they leave and say, I have to tell someone to come here next week? This was unbelievable. I don't know the answer to that, but it would be interesting to ask that question. Just to add a little bit onto what Jared is saying, there's, there's a company that we deal with in our space that is a redistributor. So they're a distributor that sells to distributors. And a uh, huge company. Uh, and, and they have a hiring policy where they, they will talk to an employee for three months and put them through a series of interviews and tests and things for over three months before they'll actually hire them. So there's a huge selection process they go through to hire a specific type of employee that they want to empower to deal with um, their, their clients. And so as, as someone who heads up sales at our organization, I'm often talking to a manager, you know, which down their chain is very, very low because they've been empowered at that low level to be able to, uh, to, to have candor and say, hey, you've got a problem here. We want to help you, but you've got a problem here. Let's solve it together. Mm -hmm. And they're, they're legendary in our space for the way that they relate in a Christian manner. They're a privately held company, Christian-owned, and they go through this selection process, and they empower their people to be able to speak very clearly, here's the problem or here's the benefit, and here's how we're going to help you work through that together which is a, that kindness piece. We want to be supportive. Um, and we love working with them. I mean, it, they're great to work with. So uh, You know, that, the kindness and candor thing is something we're trying to really curate at the Adventist Review. But it's not easy. I mean, when you're dealing with creatives, we're working on a lot of creative things, that is so sensitive. I've got a script. I'm sharing it with you. And, I mean, this is me. I have poured my heart and soul into this. I've got this image I took in the Himalayas of a village, I think Adra should go to. What do you think? If, if Jason says, who took this image? It's junk. Oh, that's me. You just called me junk. Right? So it, it is truly this art form in a company, in an organizational culture, to, to be loving, but to be willing to say the, the product or the experience isn't as good as it can be. If we can go back and forth about five times... This will be amazing. But I can tell you, it is very difficult. <laughs> it's, it's an art form. It's a great question. That is so a great question. I'm going to repeat the question. The, the question was basically in a startup situation, there's a great deal of energy that's needed. And how do you ensure that once the founder has started that, that that translates through the life of the business? Is that a fair way to, to, to ask the question? So let me take a shot at this and I'll throw it to you, Jared. Um, 
it's, you know, it's, it's a difficult thing at times because a founder is someone who really believes in an idea, right? And so they're going to have that energy and that passion to be able to, to match. So, you know, I talked about the broker that I was looking for. When I, when I went to that broker as, as one of the co-founders of, of Wonder Beer Organic Foods, I put so much time and energy into building these relationships with all these people, and they matched it back. You know, that's just the rule. You get out of it, what you come back into it. But as we began to scale, you know, sometimes I, I felt like some of the people that we hired didn't always have that same level of, of challenge. And so what we did is we began to start selecting and being more careful in our hiring process to recruit people in that had that same degree of passion. That, and it's hard to screen for sometimes. You can't always find those type of people. And so um, we're working on that. We're getting better at it. There's another company that I'm aware of called Simple Mills. Some of you may know it, that, that uh, they make gluten-free crackers. Very, very uh, dynamic and explosive company. And I listened to their CEO talk, and she said, you know, we will not hire anyone into our company unless they get us and they understand our vision and they buy in and we know they're bought in. Because when that happens, then we're going to be able to see that degree of energy be carried through at the next level beyond the founder. And so I would say that's a people issue. And as you're looking at how you want that to carry through, you want to self-select and find people that are as passionate about whatever it is you're doing in your business as, as you as a founder are. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I would just add that as founders and leaders, we need to be about creating culture. What is it we stand for? What is it we don't? And how clearly have we disseminated that to our teams? And how much do we as leaders hold them accountable? And how much can they hold us accountable? Because once the culture adapts, uh, hey, welcome to our Adventist community. Here's what you're going to find. We're the nicest people you ever meet, as rude as you treat us, as much as you want to charge us, <laughs> however you want to act in front of us. We're the kindest people you'll meet. If that's the norm, then when Danny's out on us, say, hey, Danny. You know, we, we did say we'd be the kindest people people would ever meet. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Good point. So I think sometimes it may not be as simply delineated to the team as it can be. Sometimes it's just assumed, hey, you're an Adventist. Of course you'd be the kindest as always, right? And then when I go through TSA, I lose my religion, and, you know, <laughs> I don't want that. So I, I think it's disseminating those values to say this is what our culture's about. I mean, I, I told my local church recently, I said, hey, I, I think we should redo our our mission statement, we're the kindest people you'll meet in town. Are we ready for that? Maybe not. But if you put it out there, it also allows you to say, we've promised people something. Let's, let's, now we're all accountable to it, no, not just the leader or founder. Yeah. Thank you for inviting us in such a public forum. <laughs> it's very kind of you. Thank you. Well, <laughs> we, we appreciate the fact that, you know, it's, it's like a startup, right? Starting a, a new ASI chapter. And uh, I, I'm a firm believer in that. I know Jared is as well. We'll have to look at our calendars, but let's talk afterwards. And, uh, and, and we appreciate that very much. One more question, then we've got to close. We're a couple minutes over, so we'll, we'll go in the back.
Because I'm trying to recap. Uh, yeah. How many, how many attempts did we have before we found success? And when, when you may not be the most driven, do you surround yourself with other driven people? Or, or how does that work? Innovative people, yeah. Take a, take a shot, man. <laughs> uh, okay, sure. I've, I've probably tried about 25 or 30 different industries. Failed over 50% of the time. Now, my definition of failure may be different than someone else's. Uh, they've never just closed down and, uh, well, one example, I got into day trading when I was 13, trading soybeans. Man, I was making money hand over fist. Did I take any of it out? No. I kept reinvesting it until mid-July, I lost 100 grand in a day. And I thought, I'm not day trading anymore. <laughs> That's a disaster. So um, I'm a big believer in failure. I mentioned something at the very beginning. We look at sports professionals who succeed three or four times out of ten as deserving of the Hall of Fame. And I think if, if we know some people who, well, they're a success, I would ask, how many things have you tried? And I think this is really an example in the church. If, we're keep, if we keep leaning to a couple things that have worked, I think we should have more of a batting average mentality. How many different evangelistic methods have we tried and how many did we fail in in the last year? We should have margin for attempts mm. and trying things. So uh, that's the first part. Second part, I'll answer right quick. I would say um, we, I might have touched on this last year, we're very Protestant and we like to find things that are a little off with your company. I may do things a little more righteous, so I'm going to do my own thing. I would say let's, let's take a little more humble approach and say, you know what, I may not have all the skills that you have, but... What if we teamed up? Could, could we work together? I mean, the business world, the secular world, does this very well. I mean, you see lots of things brought to you by boom, 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 all these different things. So I think there was, there's a, a lot of opportunity for us to find other people with like minds. Danny, yeah. what are your thoughts? No, great, great thoughts there. You know, my mind runs to a, a software venture I was involved in where we thought we had something really dialed in for a software platform. And by the time we got done building it, we realized <clears throat> we had completely messed up the way we built it. And we started building it from scratch before we ever, uh, ever rolled it out to a customer. And we had spent a lot of money. There was a learn there. You know, our friend Ruben, who did this with us last year, he says, I always win. He says, either I win or I learn. And sometimes learning can be expensive, right? And so, uh, you know, you, you try and frame it in such a way. And, and it doesn't, you know, once, you, once you've actually are in a company, it doesn't mean that you necessarily are all of a sudden immune from failure. That's right. You know, we've launched a product line recently that has not done well. And so we look at that and we say, what can we learn from that? How do we iterate? How do we take what we've learned and apply it so that we don't do that the next time and recognize that there is a regular cycle that happens there? And in relation to your question about, you know, surrounding yourself with people or having an idea, someone that may have an idea but can't execute it, you know, Jared's point is excellent. Team up with somebody. And, and, you know, sometimes there are different stripes of entrepreneurs. There are people that are collaborative. There are people that are fiercely independent and want to control everything. In fact, entrepreneurs tend to <laughs> want to be a little bit more on the control side. So, you know, what I would say is you just, you, you've got you've to take a look at it and see how you can frame it to be successful. Um, without, with, without specifics, I don't know how to, how to better answer it than that.
it, focus is something that's very, very important in, in any type of entrepreneurial venture. And um, you know, I would encourage you and your thinking to find what is the most important thing you can do first and executing that very well. Once that's done, then move on to the next one. If you're too scattered, especially early on, it's going to hurt you. You really need a laser focus uh, to do something very well the first time, is my thought. Great point. So, well, we're, we're over time, and uh, we really appreciate you, you spending time with us. Uh, hopefully, there was something you were able to learn from it. Jared, would you close with prayer for yeah, us? Yes, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to be here, to be able to fellowship together. We recognize this is not a luxury many people in the world get. So we just want to cherish this moment and the time we have in the halls and discussions and moments like this. Thank you for showing us things in Scripture and through the writings of Ellen White that we can see are the most cutting-edge principles in industry even today in the 21st century. Help us to continue to learn those and help us to love like you love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.